Go to Colossians chapter 1. We're just looking at seven verses this morning on how to have a life that counts for God. Since it's only seven verses, let's read that. Just read it with me. You don't have to read it out loud. But uh, Colossians 1, verse 23. If you're there, say amen. All right, let's go. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches, notice, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, notice, Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man, what? Complete in Christ. For this reason also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, going back to the top, going back to the Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, put it in context. Context is this. Context is he's talking about reconciliation with God. He's talking about being right with God. It's talking about our, our heavenly standing. It's we're reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But as he talks about reconciliation with God, as he talks about being right with God, he says there's a condition here in being right with God. And, the, and look at what it says. Go back to verse 23. It says, if indeed, ooh, that's interesting, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, interesting, if, if, if you do what? If indeed, you reconcile with God, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, hold on a second. What about eternal security? Scripture is very clear about eternal security. We could be eternally secure we're told in the scriptures a number of times about eternal security. We're told Philippians 1 6, great verse, eternal security. It says, But being, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will do what? He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Another version says, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can be confident. Once Christ, once Christ is in us, once we receive Christ, he's going to do the work. He'll be the author and the finisher of our faith. Another verse from Jesus' words himself. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of, my, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch, he's talking about a sheep, us, out of the Father's hand. Very clear. We are eternally secure. We are in the Father's hand and Jesus' hands. He's gonna take care of us. He will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what's the scripture about if? If we continue in the faith. Now we've got to balance eternal security with the warnings that are in scripture. The warnings if we reject Christ and walk away from Christ and don't continue in the faith, there's a lot of scripture that warns us stay in the faith. I'll give you scriptures that balance the eternal security scriptures. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. It says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what Paul's saying there to the Corinthians? Don't go back. In the next verse, he says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been made right with God through the blood of Jesus. So what Paul's saying there is a warning. He's saying, don't go back to the lifestyle that you once were in before Christ. Because if you go back to the lifestyle of adultery, you go back to the lifestyle of homosexuality, you go back to the, uh, uh, the lifestyle of being a thief, and you go back to that and say, praise the Lord on Sunday, but I'll keep being a thief on Monday, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Other scriptures point to this too when it talks about the deeds of the flesh. Galatians chapter five, it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, interesting, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things, of, things of like these of which I, notice, forewarn you, it's a warning, just as I forewarn you that those who, notice the word, practice such things will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. And that's important because here's what happens. We can be eternally secure. We can have assurance as we abide in Christ, as we live out our faith. We aren't going to be, you know, saved Monday and lost Tuesday. We can have eternal security. But these warning scriptures are there for those that presume on the grace of God that use the grace of God as a license for sin. And they say, hey, I pray the sinner's prayer, but I'm going to keep being a thief. I pray the sinner's prayer, but I'm going to keep having that affair on my wife. I'm going to keep in my adultery. No, 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 no. The warning in Scripture is you go to that, practice those things, and you go into that lifestyle without repentance, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I don't know how that works in the balance. I don't know how predestination and God's choosing us works with us, our human responsibility and free will, but the scriptures are both there. I just know that if I go into a lifestyle of sin, according to those warning scriptures, I better repent. Because if I stay in a lifestyle of sin and presume on the grace of God, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what that scripture is saying. So how does this get us to our first point on how to have a life that counts for God? Go back to our scripture. You want to have a life that counts for God, go back to verse 23. Here's the first thing that's got to be in place. You've got to continue in the faith. And not only you've got to continue in the faith, you've got to stay Firmly established. You gotta be a, you gotta be people that continue on in your faith walk with Jesus Christ and you don't derail and go back to the old life. You want to have a life that counts. Keep pressing on, as Paul said, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the first way we do that is being firmly established. And how do we get firmly established through what we're doing right now, being in God's word? How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping according to that word? Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And we need to be like Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, when he says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. And as we're people that hunger for God's word, we get firmly established in our faith by being people of God's word. And that's why I love Calvary Chapel, and that's why I'm a part of Calvary Chapel, because it's all about getting firmly established in God's Word, and that will help us continue in the faith. But another thing it says there, if we want to continue in the faith, not only do we need to be firmly established, but we need to be steadfast. My life verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, cross-reference to this. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. You know what that's saying? Is, is if we want to have a life that counts, we got to stay steadfast in our growth in Christ. we got to keep going forward. Because tell you what, you, if you're not going forward in Christ, you're going backwards. If you're coasting, you're going downhill. There's no such thing as neutral in the Christian faith. We should all have a goal to be steadfast and movable, pressing on in our Christian faith, growing a little bit more like Jesus every day, maturing in our faith every year. We should make it a goal that every year we're going to, at the end of the year, be a little bit more like Christ, and we're going to be steadfast, established, and growing to the point by the end of the year we're going to be a little bit more mature than we were the, at the beginning of the year. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then we're going to have a life that counts. This is important to me. Because I've seen in the last five, ten years, I've seen some people that I highly respect and I love and I've learned from that are not steadfast in the faith anymore. Preachers. The guy that wrote my letter of recommendation to Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, to get me affiliated here in the South with Calvary Chapel. He started the church, the Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale, which went on to become the largest Calvary Chapel in the world. Uh, uh, the, the, the church grew to the point that it had 20,000 people coming to Sunday services. I get a headache just thinking about that. Can you imagine the children's ministry for 20,000 people? But in the busyness and uh, everything that was going on down there in Fort Lauderdale, the pastor, a friend of mine, wrote my letter of recommendation. He didn't continue in the faith. He didn't stay steadfast. He got derailed to the point that he got fired and the next thing you know, he's not the pastor at the church anymore. The next thing you know, he's going to a church of uh, assist, assistant pastors started another church in Chattanooga. He's up in Chattanooga just trying to be restored and recover. And the last time I talked to the pastor in Chattanooga about my friend who was the pastor in Fort Lauderdale, he said, you know, pray for him because he's not even practicing Christianity 101 anymore. Breaks my heart. Then continue in the faith. Got derailed. And you know, Hey, accept the grace of God, go, there go we. Amen? That's why the Bible says, hey, he who thinks he stands, you better take heed lest you fall. Keep, keep in a position where you're being established firmly in the faith. You're growing, you're steadfast, you're pressing on, you're going forward in your walk with Christ because the best place to be in your Christianity is pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Continue in the faith. First thing, if you want to have a life that counts. Second thing, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Interesting. Now, careful with that verse. Don't add to the redemption of Christ saying that, that he says he's, sharing, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Like there was anything that needed to be done by us in Christ's affliction to pay for our sins. That's not what he's saying. Jesus said on the cross, Mike already mentioned it, it is finished, literally translates to telestai, paid in full. We don't have to add anything to what Christ did in his afflictions. Here what, here's what Paul's talking about. It's a cross-reference back to Philippians 3.10 when he says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What Paul's talking about there is as he suffers for the cause of Christ, he's sharing the afflictions of Christ and it's helping him know Christ better. 
because he's sharing in the afflictions of Christ. He's entering and identifying with his Savior and the sufferings that he's facing. And because of that, Paul says, I rejoice in sufferings because it gets me to know Christ better. Here's a second principle. It needs to be in place if we're going to have lives that count for Christ. Rejoice. Learn to rejoice in trials. Learn to rejoice even in suffering. Why? Because it'll help you know Christ better. When are the times you've grown the most spiritually? When are the, what happened, I think about what happened before I even came to Christ. It's in one of the toughest trials of my life. Tough times. It drove me to Christ. And so part of the, the second thing that needs to be a place if we have lives that count for Christ is have the right perspective on trials. And it's not easy. I'm right there with you. It is not easy. When, when life gets tough, it's hard to keep trusting Christ and keep going forward in those trials. It's tough. But the Scripture tells us, consider it all joy, my brethren, James 1, 2-4, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, literally translated, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul said to the Romans, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3-5, to he talked about this trial stuff and rejoicing in trials also. He says, not only this, but we also exalt or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. See the, see the process there? Trials produce proven character and hope in our lives. I'm reading through Job, or just finished reading through Job in my quiet times right now. I read Old Testament at nighttime, New Testament in the morning. I try to read through the entire Bible every year. And so I just finished Job. Job was an amazing book because he lost everything. You talk about trials. He lost his business. He lost his kids. He lost his home. And then he lost his health. And it's, and he, it's not like he didn't question God either. He had all kinds of questions. But he kept his faith. Now that he keep his faith, he made statements like, God, even if you slay me, O oh God, yet will I put my trust in you. And then he said in Job 23.10, great statement, he knows the way I take, and when he tries me, I shall come forth as what? Gold. Interesting. He says there's a golden quality that comes into our lives as we trust God through trials and suffering, and we even rejoice in our sufferings. You know, and it's not easy because life, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Another version says, you will have trials. We're living in a cursed world. We get curveballs all the time, tough times. But the best thing we could do when those tough times come is maintain our faith. Have a Job-like attitude that says, this trial is in my life to produce some kind of golden quality that God will use in the future. And not only that, I, as you suffer, that's going to be a part of your ministry to other people. Because 2 Corinthians 1 says, as we are comforted in our afflictions and God comforts us, and we get through that with faith, then we're able to comfort others that face the same affliction that we faced. It's a purpose in our trials. And we need to keep that perspective of rejoicing in our trials. And it'll help us not be derailed in our faith. <laughs> I was reading about one of my other heroes the other day. is uh, Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom, her parents, uh, her dad was a watchmaker in Holland. One of the reasons why I like her so much is she's Dutch. And if you're not Dutch, you're not much. No, just kidding. <laughs> but she's Dutch, and I'm Dutch. I'm 100% Dutch. Heidi's 100% Dutch. We're blue bloods. Anyways, so, uh, <laughs> so her dad was a watchmaker during World War II, and Nazis took over Holland. 
And then as they took over Holland, they started doing the concentration camps and killing all the Jewish people. Her dad was, uh, had his own business, and her dad felt convicted that as Christians, they're supposed to help the Jews. So they started hiding Jews in their closet, in their attic, helping them escape from Nazi-occupied Holland. And then as they did that, they helped dozens and dozens and dozens of Jewish people save their lives. But then they got arrested by the Nazis, thrown in concentration camps. And she ended up in a concentration camp with her sister, who she loved dearly. And her sister ended up dying in that concentration camp because of the brutality of the camp. Awful. But you know, in the midst of that trial she was in in that concentration camp, they were thrown in these unsanitary, bad hygiene, just huts, cabins. And then they had fleas and bed bugs. And they had all these women in this one cabin, and everybody, they were getting infested with all these fleas. And, and Corey said in the midst of that, she started getting derailed in her faithfulness, and she talked to her sister, who was a godly woman, and she said, what is going on? Why would God allow us not only be in this concentration camp, but have all these fleas and everything else? And her sister said, Corey, keep the faith. God's got a reason and a purpose for what's going on here. And Corey, let's do this. Let's start a Bible study. And they started a Bible study in that concentration camp, and they led Jewish people to Christ. And that led many of the women that were in that, Bible, in, that, in, that, in that concentration camp to Christ. And here's what happened. Because the bed bugs and the fleas got so bad, and they're part of the concentration camp, guess what the guards did? They stopped even going to the, the, the place, to the place that they could evangelize and do Bible studies 24-7 because the guards weren't stopping them because the guards wouldn't want to be, anything to do with that. God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen? God's got a purpose and a plan even in our trials and our suffering. We just got to trust him in him. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. He says, it's for your sake. And it's for me to share in the afflictions of Christ and drive me closer to Christ. Verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now Paul says two things about me. I'm a minister and I'm a steward. Now careful with the word minister. In our culture, minister means the guy that's got, you know, the MDiv from a seminary. The minister is the guy that's ordained. The minister is the guy that sometimes wears the, 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 the collar or whatever else. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Minister in the New Testament, diokonia, just means servant. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. Paul would start his letters oftentimes, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said about serving? He said, the greatest among you shall be a servant. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. After he washed the disciples' feet, he said, yes, you, you, I washed your feet, and you're right, I'm Lord and Master, but I washed your feet so you would go and wash and serve other people. Serve other people in Jesus' name. That's a part of our calling, being a minister. You know, every single person here, every single Christian, you're called to be a minister. I just ordained you in Jesus' name. Seriously, you're called to be a minister. You're called to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your calling. Second thing that Paul says about himself is he's a steward. He's a stewardship. Now, what is a steward? We think of stewards in our culture as the guy in the airplane that gives you pretzels and nuts. That's a steward. No, no, no. Steward is a manager of a master's estate. Joseph, Old Testament, was a steward of Potiphar's household. Stewards would take care of the, the wealthy person's, the master's stuff. 
What's that tell us about who we are, who Paul was and who we are? We're all called to be not only servants, but stewards. We have time, we have talents, we have treasures. God wants us to manage that for the kingdom. And if you want to have a life that counts, have a perspective that I'm just here to serve. I'm here to be a servant for my God and for his people, and I'm going to be a steward. I'm going to manage the time, the talents, the treasures that God has given me for his purpose and for his kingdom. And you know what? That's not just the preacher's job, by the way. We're all called to be ministers, servants. We're all called to be stewards of the time, the talents, and the treasures that God has given us. When I was in seminary, the last year of seminary, it's a very busy year. I, I, was, I was a college pastor at a large Baptist church in Los Angeles. I was dating Heidi, get, got engaged that year to Heidi that spring. And then I was, I was also uh, getting a full uh, MDiv degree. I was in full-time graduate school. And I made this decision as the year evolved that I needed to get closer to where my church was at, which was 30-minute commute to the seminary. And so I said, I'm going I'm to find someone in the church that I can move in with and live there, and then I'll just commute to seminary, but be where the college students are at and also be where the church is at where I was on staff. And so I found this couple. I met them at church. And they, Barb and Dale Hensley, and they were great examples of what I'm talking about here, being servants, being stewards. They, the, Barb and Dale Hensley were only like 30 years old at the time. I was in my mid-20s. They were in their 30s, or just turned 30, and they had already started their own software company. Now, you need to understand, this is 1985. This is before everybody had computers. And these, this couple, they were I think they were genius level because they were already writing software for like TRW and some of these major uh, uh, companies out in Los Angeles. And they had their own personal software company to write software. They actually wrote the software for the first space shuttle simulator. They wrote the software for it. Amazing. But needless to say, their software company was just going through the roof. They were making ching chang. They're making a lot of money. And so I was introduced to them, and then I found out they didn't have kids yet. They had a house with an extra bedroom, and the pastor proposed to them, uh, could our college pastor stay in for his last year of seminary live with you? And they said, sure, let's do it. And so I got word I was going to move in from the dormitories at Fuller to Barbanel Hensley's house. And in my mind, I thought, boy, software company, hmm, this is going to be a mansion in L.A., kind of like a Beverly Hills or something. I, was, I had all these delusions of grandeur, right? And I remember pulling my motorcycle up to their house after I got the address. And it was just this little three-bedroom, two-bath house. And they had this old van in the drive, driveway. I'm going, am I at the right address? And I, I knocked on the door. It's Barbara and Dale Hensley. And I learned so much from them this last year I was in seminary. Because you know what? They had a lot of means. But they were using their means for the kingdom of God. They were using their time. They helped lead a Sunday school class. They helped lead worship. They helped do a small group. They, they, they were using their time besides their company for the kingdom of God. They were ministers and stewards for the kingdom of God. It was a great example to me. I remember, too, they would get, I, I would get the mail sometimes from them because I'd get home before they get home from work. And I'd get the mail, and they'd have a stack on a regular basis of mail like this high of mission organizations that they, after they tied to their church, their offerings went to mission organizations. Sometimes it was almost humorous to me because sometimes they get in the mail prizes because they're their biggest donor for the month for that mission organization. They get more stuff, like prizes for the mission organization. It was amazing to me, this couple, and how just God continued to bless them as they served 
and as they ministered in Jesus' name. And they used their time, their talents, and their treasures for the furthest, and their lives were counting for God. And then I remember Heidi and I, we eventually got married, and, and then that next year we went down to San Diego to start our first church in Oceanside, California. And I remember as we were doing that, man, we were broke. I mean, this was, this was a tough spot because it's Southern California. If you know anything about it, it's expensive. And so we moved down there, and we had a real small salary or whatever, but we would get regular checks for the support of that church from Barbadale Hensley for two years, and they helped us stay afloat in that church plant. It was amazing. Stewards and managers and ministers of, of, of Jesus Christ modeled to me, and that's what Paul was, and that's what we're supposed to be. And as we do that, church, we're going to make a difference for God. Amen? Okay, let's keep going. So the second thing is be a steward, be a minister. Or the third thing is steward and minister. And then verse 26, notice what he says, and that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is known as, what's the mystery? Christ in you, what? It's a great verse, the hope of glory. Now Paul's talking about a mystery there. Mystery, the word in the Greek is mysterion. It was the word that was used for something that was hid in the past is now, and now revealed in the present. And what Paul's saying is, hidden in the Old Testament was this mystery that's now being revealed to the New Testament that the Gentiles are now have access to the grace of God through Christ. And these Gentiles now that believe in Jesus have Christ in them the hope of glory. Now that's a mystery to the Jews even in the first century church that had become Christians because the Jews had this perspective and it was just part of their culture that Gentiles were just supposed to be the logs for the fire of hell. Gentiles, the Jews thought, were basically just dogs. They actually had a name for them. They, those are the dogs. Gentiles were the pagans. Now, Paul's saying the mystery, the mystery that's being revealed to us is through the gospel of grace. Gentiles can have Christ in them, the hope of glory. That's good news for us, you know, because probably 99% of us in this room are Gentiles. It's a good thing that the, the lines were crossed of faith in Christ now has brought the gospel of grace to all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all pagans. And if you just simply believe in Jesus Christ, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's awesome. It's good news. The gospel's good news. And here's the next thing that needs to be in place if you're going to have a life that counts for Christ. Keep in perspective. Have a heavenly perspective of who you are in Christ. Keep a mind that stayed in the gospel and the fact that your future is Christ in you is the hope of glory. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. And as you have that perspective, you're going to have a heavenly perspective. Now, there's a saying that I totally disagree with. I understand where they're coming from, but I totally disagree with. It's a saying that says, that person is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that? And I get what they're saying there. What they're saying there is, you're stuck in the clouds so much, you're not doing anything here on earth. But I think just the opposite is true. I think if you want to be any earthly good, you've got to keep your mind in heaven. You've got to keep the perspective that soon and very soon, you're going to see your king. 
And you got to keep in perspective that this life is just a little tiny speck, you know, speck on the time span of eternity. We've got to keep in perspective that, hey, these light momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Keep the perspective that heaven's right around the corner. You know, Paul had an advantage. I'll, I'll give it to him. He had an advantage on this one on us. Do you know why? Because 2 Corinthians 12 says Paul when, had an out-of-body of experience where probably outside the city of Lystra when he was stoned, he was stoned to death. Died. And he went to heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 says he went to heaven and he experienced things that were inexpressible. Experienced heaven. And then the believers there prayed for him and he was resuscitated and he came back. Can you imagine Paul's, uh, why did you pray me back? I was in glory. And they prayed him back. But I believe after he had that heavenly experience, it put a fire in his soul to bring the gospel of grace to the entire Roman Empire because he wanted to take as many people with him to that place of glory that he was going back to. And that should be the same with us, too. Christ in us, church, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Keep that perspective. And it should put a fire in us that we want to take as many people with us possibly to heaven with us. Because Christ in us is the hope of glory. I was reading a book on evangelism several years ago, and it was by a pastor that was reaching his city in some magnificent ways with evangelism. And this, this pastor, they, they had grown the church to the place that reached a lot of people in that city. And he had, he had a, a dozens of people on staff because the church had grown so large. And he said that in this book on evangelism, he said that he put a, a memo on every single staff person's desk at the beginning of the work week, every week. They, every week, they, they'd have a memo right on their desk that said, let's make it hard to go to hell in this city for Jesus Christ. He kept that heavenly perspective in every staff person by Let's do enough ministry, do enough outreach, do enough evangelism in this city that this is going to be a, it was a big city, this would be a hard city for anybody to go to hell in because we're reaching so many people for Christ. Hey, church, let's do that here in Lexington, amen? What's our, what's our, what's our theme for this year? It's up there. It's right there on there and over there. What's our theme? Each one, reach one. Again, Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So let's get on with it. Each one, reach one, and keep the heavenly perspective. Christ in you, it's a hope of glory. Let's take as many people with us there, amen? All right, let's close up our scripture now. Verse 28, we proclaim him, we proclaim who? Christ. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, what? Complete. Another version says mature in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Last thing Paul's saying here is we proclaim Christ to people. The word proclaim there means preach. It's the gospel. And Paul says, we don't, we, don't, we don't sidestep this. Every opportunity we get, we're going to proclaim Christ to people. The, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, Mark 16, 15. And Paul was, he was proclaiming Christ to everybody and anybody he could. But the second thing he says, we also admonish everyone. The word admonish, interesting word there, it means warn. 
means correct, means rebuke. And then he says, after we warn, correct, admonish, then we teach. And our purpose in teaching people is so that we could, we could present the people we teach and admonish and proclaim Christ to, we could present them complete in Christ. You know what? That's what we're supposed to be about. And that's why I love Calvary Chapel too, is because we don't just preach the gospel and leave it there. We're trying to admonish, and then we're to, we want to teach you. We want to instruct you so that you'll grow up and mature in Christ. What did Jesus say the Great Commission is? Go, make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know what? You know I've seen here in the South? And I've seen here in the South that a lot of churches in our, our region here are very good at the very first thing. A lot of churches here in the South, you'll go to them and they will boldly proclaim every Sunday the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. And a lot of churches here in the South, they'll not only preach the gospel every Sunday, they'll give an altar call on a regular basis to get people saved. Praise God for that. It's good. They're proclaiming Christ. But that's where they stop. They don't teach. They don't admonish. They don't instruct people in God's word. And that's, that's very important because the pastor's job isn't just to preach, it's to teach. Flip, uh, Ephesians 4 says the pastor is supposed to be a pastor-teacher equipping the saints for the work of service. So church, as long as this bald guy's up here on this stage, you're going to get taught. We're going to get in the Word. We're going to instruct. We're going to admonish. We're going to correct. We're going to train you in righteousness through God's Word. Because I want you guys to be people that are maturing in Christ and becoming complete in Christ. And that's the last thing that's on the list if you want to have a life that counts. Is be a disciple that's getting maturity in Christ through God's Word, admonishing, taught, and proclaimed and then as you grow in that discipleship, then you start discipling other people too, and your life will count. So well, I don't have the gift of teaching. I don't feel comfortable teaching people. You don't have to be a teacher to disciple other people. Did you know that? God's called all of us to not only be people that have Pauls in our lives that disciple us, but we're also called to have Timothys in our lives that we disciple them. And help them grow and become mature and complete in Christ. When I was in college, I went to the University of Illinois, and I was a young Christian. I just got saved, basically, uh, my junior year in high school. And then I went off to this university, University of Illinois, 45,000 students. Largest fraternity and sorority system in the country. And there was all kinds of craziness going on. And I was like a fish out of the water when I first got there. And I had a lot of rough edges still, too. I was still trying to come out of the world and everything, and then I get thrown back into this mess of 45,000 people with all these fraternity sororities everywhere. And finally, by my sophomore year in college, I realized I got to get discipled. I got involved in this campus church. It's a great church. Bible teaching church like we are. Great commission church. But also, it was discipleship oriented to the point that if you got in that church and you asked for it, you'd get discipled. So I asked for it. I said to the pastor, could, could someone disciple me here? And he said, Brian Schmidt, one of our deacons, he'll disciple you. And Brian Schmidt was an interesting guy. He was a big, tall, blonde-haired guy, played basketball, really fun guy to be around, but he didn't have the gift of teaching. 
I remember sitting in a Bible study when he got thrown into the lead a Bible study with a bunch of us college students, and it was like, the, it, it wasn't working. He didn't have the gift of teaching. It just didn't want working. But he was a discipler, and I was his project. And I had a lot of rough edges. And I remember we started that first semester in that campus church I was part of. He started meeting with me on a weekly basis, just him and I. Had discipleship stuff. He started having me memorize scripture. Started having me doing lessons. And then he started mentoring me. And I needed it. <laughs> I really needed it. And then I started playing a basketball intramural league with him. And just by his example, I was catching more Christianity. I remember I, we, he would, he'd get, he was a big tall guy, so he'd get fouled like crazy. And then, then people wouldn't call the fouls and everything else. And I just, I wanted to go up and punch somebody. And he just, God bless you, turn the other cheek, keep playing. And he had those fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I just learned being around him. And I remember being discipled by him and my life changing because he loved me and he mentored me and he discipled me. I remember also, it's typical college scene, on the weekends you all sleep in, right? College, college hours is you stay up late and you sleep late. And so I started missing a couple after you started discipling. I started missing some church services, and he had a new rule in our discipleship. He says, John, I'm going to come pick you up for church every Sunday. I go, really? He goes, yeah, that's part of our discipleship. From now on, I pick you up. And he'd drive up to my house. I'll never forget, he had this old Mustang, and he drove up to our house, and if I wasn't ready at the door to go to church, he'd start beeping his horn. And I lived with all these other college students that were sleeping in, and they'd say, John, get that guy out of our driveway. And he would beep his horn until I got myself out there and got in his car and went to church with him. And that, started, that was a part of the discipleship of committing to going to church every Sunday with, with Brian Schmidt. And you know what? It changed me. Because he loved me, he discipled me, and he had a commitment to not only proclaim Christ to me, but to admonish me and warn me and correct me, but also to teach me and take me under his wing and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Church, let's do that for some other people too, amen? Let's see people in our lives changed because we have a burden to proclaim Christ to them, to admonish them, and then to teach them what we've already learned in Jesus Christ. And you will have a life that counts as you have the heart of Paul that says we're going to proclaim Christ to people, we're going to admonish people, and we're going to teach people and disciple people in Jesus' name. And that's just not the pastor's jobs. That's all of our jobs, amen? Amen. I got an amen back there from some little child. Amen. So five things we learned this morning. Five things we learned this morning about, about making a difference, having a life that counts. Number one, let's go back. Let's do a little review here. The first thing that needs to be in place if we're going to have a life that counts is we need to continue in the, we need to be firmly established. We need to be people that are steadfast, going forward, not being derailed in our faith. We get that from God's word. Number two, we need to be people that have the right perspective on what? Suffering and trials. We need to be people of faith, even in the midst of the storms. Trust God. Trust God and keep, keep trusting him, even though the, the, the curveballs are coming of trials or suffering. And we all need to learn that. And then number three, we need, we need to be people that are ministers, servants, and stewards. We have time, treasures, and talents that need to be used for the kingdom and have a perspective. We're just servants, and we're just stewards of what God's given us. Number four, we need to be people that keep a heavenly perspective, that Christ in us, it's what? 
It's the hope of glory. And so keep your mind in heaven. We're going to learn later in Colossians, set your mind on things above. As Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all things will be added unto you. Be people that keep your mind in heaven, that ultimately, soon and very soon, we're going to see our king. And Christ in us is what? It's the hope of glory, man. That's our future. Our future is heaven. and should put a fire in our soul to take as many people with us to heaven. Because Christ in us, it's the hope of glory. And then the last thing we've seen is we need to be a part. If our lives are on account, we need to get on the train of discipleship. We need to be discipled by other people. We need to put ourselves in a position where Christ is being proclaimed to us, we're being admonished, we're being taught, and then we start multiplying that by doing that for others also. Church, can I get an amen on that? Amen. And hey, you might be here this morning, <laughs> you might be here this morning, and this is going woo over your head, and you go, what is that bald guy up on the stage talking about? I don't get it. And if that's the case, maybe you're not getting it yet, because you need to open your heart to Christ. The Bible says, but as many as received him, he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And my question you hear this morning is, if you want to have a life that counts, you need to get to first base first. First base is receiving Christ. And if you haven't done that yet this morning, do it today. It's the best decision you'll make in your whole life. I did it 40 years ago. Best decision I ever made when I opened my heart to God's love. Receive Christ. And you know what? The Bible says Jesus is knocking on the door of every person's heart. And he just wants to come in. He wants to dine with you and he, you with him. He wants to be your friend, your savior, your Lord. If you haven't done it yet, all you need to do is admit your sin. Trust Christ and receive him in your heart. And I encourage you this morning, if you don't know that you know that you know you've opened your heart to Christ, make today be your day. Make today be your spiritual birthday where you open your heart to Christ. And if Christ is knocking on the door, open it. And I'll help you with that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, lead a sinner's prayer during our prayer time. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If you want me to help you uh, open your heart to Christ, just raise your hand during the prayer time when I ask you to, and I'll pray for you, and I'll pray with you a sinner's prayer that will open your heart to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word establishes us. Thank you that your word warns us, it admonishes us, and it teaches us. Thank you that your word helps us to be in a discipleship process where we're growing and we're going forward and we're continuing in our faith, Lord. And Father, help us to be a people that are applying these principles of having a life that counts. Help us to not be derailed, but to continue to be steadfast, going for, uh, forward in our faith, being firmly established in your word, God. Help us to be people that keep a right perspective on the trials and the suffering we face too, Lord. When life is hard, God, help us to cling closer to you so we could say along with Job, because of these trials, we're going to come forth as gold. I pray too that we'd be people that have the perspective of being ministers and servants of the living God. Help us to realize, God, that, that you've called us to serve, but also to manage those things you've blessed us with, Lord. Help us to keep that perspective of that our time, our talents, our treasures are ultimately given just for these 70, 80 years to make a difference for your kingdom, God. Father, I pray too that you'd help us to keep that heavenly vision that Christ in us is the hope of glory, that Christ in us is the, the future of being in glory in heaven 
a place that Paul described as inexpressible. And Lord, I pray too that we would be a people that are being discipled by your word and then passing that discipleship on to other people too and proclaiming Christ to others and admonishing others and teaching others what we've learned. Lord, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning too that need to get to first base. They need to receive Christ. They don't know for sure that they're right with you, Lord. They need to open their heart to your love, God. If you're here this morning and you want to do that this morning, here's what I want to do. I want you just to raise your hand and say, John, Pastor John, just pray for me. I want to open my heart to Christ. If you're here this morning and you want to do that this morning, just raise your hand right now and I'd love to pray for you right now. Don't be ashamed of Christ. He wants to come in and save you if you're not saved yet. And so if you need to do that this morning, here's what I want you to do right now. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you so you can receive Christ. He's knocking. He's knocking, I believe, in some people's hearts right now. If you need to, need to open your heart to Christ, you need to accept Christ as your Savior and your Lord, raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. Anybody this morning? The Lord loves you. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for your sins. If you need to get that right with him and you need to open your heart to that, that love of Christ, again, just raise your hand and I'd love to pray for you this morning. Anybody this morning? Don't be ashamed. Well, praise the Lord. It seems like everybody's already opened their heart to Christ. If not... One last chance. If you want to receive Christ, just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that your word is what feeds us, Lord. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, God. Help us to live out these principles we've learned this morning, God. Help us to be people that are, are, are being discipled by your word, firmly established. Help us to be people that keep going forward in our faith. Help us to be people that love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, Father. And help us to have that heavenly perspective that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And God, I pray that we would, wouldn't be selfish with this gift, but we'd be people that are proclaiming Christ to the world around us. We would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And Lord, just thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people sit. Amen. Let's all stand, church. And hey, good response to God's grace, what we've learned about this morning of just his love, is worship. One of the ways we could bless God is through our worship. So let's bless him now. Let's close our service with some blessing of God through worship. We minister, actually. The Bible says we minister to God as we worship him. And so God bless you, church. Be disciples this week. Remember, Christ in you is what? Amen. 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 Keep that perspective. And when the, when the suffering or the trials come this week, remember, Christ said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world.